Well, did anyone watch that debate on Thursday night? I mean, let me get this straight. 17 different people want to be the Republican Party candidate for president in this country. And I'm pretty sure this election is in what year? 2016, and we're already debating about it? Here, I mean, is it just me, or have they taken the hype to a whole new level? Is, is this record-setting? More people watching, things happening earlier. Uh, all to get your vote in the year 2016. We're breaking records, and millions of Americans are watching debates now because we're at such a critical time in America that everybody knows this next election is going to really make a difference. And so there's already so much hype about it. Anybody following this? Anybody pay attention to this? Uh, there's a lot of talk going on about this next presidential election over a year before it's even going to happen. And I watched the debate, and this isn't really the place for political commentary, but I'll tell you something. None of those guys that I saw is going to save America. You know what I'm talking about? If we're putting our hope in a man to save America, our problems are way past that. There's only one who can save America, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be talking to. That's who we need to be looking to. See, And we're going to hear so much over the next year and a couple of months. You and I are going to hear so much about voting and casting the vote. And people are going to ask you even, who are you voting for? Okay, And I want to encourage everybody, be a good citizen of America. Be registered to vote if you aren't, and you should vote to do your duty as a citizen who wants to obey the governing authorities. But every time you hear about voting in America, what I want you to think is, I'm casting my vote for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I need to pray for Him to do something in this nation, because that's the one hope that we have, my friends. So grab your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 85, and we're going to look at an example of a type of prayer for revival in a nation. And I want to hold this up as an example to us, and we're going to draw some principles from this psalm uh, that we, about the nation of Israel that we could pray about the nation of America today. And like Johnny said earlier, if you've been here, we've been looking at uh, the book of Jonah. And God did a great revival of repentance there in the city of Nineveh. And God showed the pity, the compassion that he has for those who are lost, that he wants to save them. And so that's really then fueled us as we've looked at that example of Jonah in the past. That's fueling us to want to see a revival in America here in the present. And I think we're getting just a little glimpse of what revival could look like here at this church. And it's great to have you here at our church. We have more people coming to our church every week, like every week the month of uh, July, and even into last weekend in August, basically, we got more people showing up, breaking new attendance records here at the church. It's a very exciting time. You guys are spreading the word. People are coming, and even more than just coming to church, people are getting what we're talking about. I was meeting with this young man this week, and I'm just trying to get to know him. He's been around, and I'm just saying, hey man, let's get to know each other. He's been going to church all of his life, and I'm like, tell me your story of salvation. What has God done in your life? And I'm expecting him to tell me this like long testimony, and I'm like, when did you get saved, man? And he's like, dude, I got saved a week and a half ago when you were preaching on repentance. That's what he said. 
I've been going to church my whole life. I believe in Jesus Christ. But then I've always had sin in my life at the same time. And I didn't know what to do about that. I knew there was a problem, but I didn't know what to do until I heard about repentance. And then I did it, and my life's completely different now. See, that's the kind of thing that we're starting to see. Back at Marina High School, we had maybe 125 people that were signed up from the beginning to be a part of this church. And last Sunday, 480 souls came to this building. We haven't even been around a, a year yet. So we're just seeing a glimpse here of what we're hoping. We're just hoping we're all here at the ground floor. These are the early days, the humble beginnings. As we're about to see God do something at this church that we're hoping is going to spread in our cities to our entire country. We're praying for revival. And so I want you to look at the example that we have in Psalm 85. And let's see what we can learn from it. Follow along with me as I read another psalm for us here this morning. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yet the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. So we have clearly a prayer for revival. You can see that in verse 6. And this was a prayer for the people of Israel. Now we know that God has a unique relationship. He has made a covenant with the Jewish people. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, how odd of God to choose the Jews. But we can clearly see in the Bible and throughout history that the Jewish people are a people unlike any other on planet earth. That God, in his sovereign purpose, has chosen them to be his people, to love them. And you can see that's what it says in verse 1. If you look back at it with me, you were favorable to your land. This land, this nation of Israel that we're in, this is your land for your people. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And you might read that if you're reading through the Old Testament sometime. It'll talk about the God of Jacob. Well, the forefathers of the nation of Israel are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his name is really a synonym. And it, sometimes he's even called Israel. So when it talks about the, the fortunes of Jacob, the God of Jacob, it's talking about God, the people of Israel. And so what we believe here at this church, based on the promises of the Bible is that God has made a unique promise 
to the nation of Israel that they will always exist, that he always has a plan for their good, that even when there was no nation of Israel for hundreds and thousands of years, when Hebrew was a dead language in the 1900s, God even brought back Israel, brought Hebrew back now, and that's what they're speaking in the city of Jerusalem because God has a special relationship with Israel. You know, let me ask you this. Does God have a special relationship with the United States of America? Has God promised that there will be, never be an end to our nation? No, see, he, he's made that promise to, to no other nation. No other nation has this unique relationship. In fact, what the Bible makes very clear to all other nations like us is that if we continue in our sin, we can expect judgment for our sin. Now, it's, it's sad when you, when you look at the history of America, and we're, we're specifically focusing on America here to pray for today. Um, our nation has a kind of a unique history in world history that I believe religious freedom was a legitimate motive in why people came to the colonies and that the founding fathers whether they were individually saved and had faith in Jesus or not, collectively, they came from a very biblical worldview. Okay? We've been talking about Revive America for enough weeks, and a very nice new family here at the church, they brought me a gift after service last Sunday, and it was this book, really thick book, it was called The Founder's Bible. And it's a version of the Holy Scriptures and they've interspersed in it all of these original quotes and writings from the founding fathers and even throughout the history of our nation, things presidents have said. And it will shock you, the things that presidents of America said at the beginning of our nation and throughout our nation and how different it is than the things we hear said today. I mean, even the people that clearly were not Christians, who would have been considered the liberals at the founding of our nation, the Thomas Paines, the Thomas Jeffersons, it is clear that these men believed in a creator who governed the world and that he gave us a revelation of who he was in the scriptures. You can tell that by their quotes. And I would go, even before we became a nation, with kind of that biblical understanding of a God and of the sin of men and of the Bible. Even before that, there was this thing that happened in our country called the Great Awakening. Anybody here ever heard of the Great Awakening? It's really the beginning of America before we declared independence. We saw a great revival in this nation. I mean, if you've never studied the Great Awakening, you at least need to Wikipedia it later today, okay? At least start there, all right? Just type it in and start Googling the Great Awakening. If names like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield don't mean anything to you, these are the guys we should think of as the founding fathers of the church in America. Okay? George Whitfield would ride throughout the colonies and people, towns would shut down. Farmers would get on horse and ride for miles and they wouldn't see anybody working in any of their fields because they had all gone to hear George Whitfield preach the gospel. He rolled up in the city of Boston and the town shut down so that everyone would go and hear this man deliver the good news of Jesus Christ and hundreds were saved. Even Benjamin Franklin a very liberal man at that time in his own thinking would go to hear George Whitfield and people would question him, Mr. Franklin, why do you go to hear him? You don't believe what he believes. And Benjamin Franklin would say, but he does. See, 
He believes it. I mean, that's the foundation of this nation. There was somewhat here in this nation a biblical understanding of who God was and the sin of men and the need for the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are turning so far away from that, you guys. I mean, we are headed now completely in the wrong direction where we are making things like murder and sexual immorality the law of the land. It's completely perverted and twisted what's happened in this nation. And if you're not going to do something about it in your own heart and mind, if you're not going to pray for America now, then you're never going to pray, my friend. If there was ever a time that we needed God's people to rise up and to say, God, look at verse 4. Here's a great thing that every single one of us should be praying for our nation. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Please don't judge us. We, we see our sin, God. We're sure that you see our sin. We, we're sure that our sin is causing you to turn away from us and your wrath is going to come upon us. God, please put your indignation away toward us. Please don't be angry with us. Revive us again. Cause your church to rejoice in you again. God, show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we learned a word about turning from sin. God said he was going to judge the city of Nineveh because of their wickedness. But he sent Jonah to warn them. And Jonah gave them 40 days in the word from the Lord. 40 days in Nineveh would be overthrown. And the people, when they heard the judgment was coming, they turned. We learned this Hebrew word, shub. That was the word, right? And it refers to turning. Going in the opposite direction. And the people of Nineveh, they so turned from their sin, they confessed it. They cried out to God in a mighty way that God turned from His judgment on them. When they repented, then God relented of the judgment that was coming upon them. That's the word in verse 4. I don't know why they translate it, restore us again, O God, here. But it's shub, that's the word. We need a turning right now in America before it is too late. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? Okay, now is the time. If you are not praying now for America, you will never pray for America. You don't care. You can't see what's going on. We need God's people to become God's people once again and to pray for a revival in this land or we are going to go down. Those are the options in front of us. And so we ask for God to turn. Uh, and Charles Spurgeon on, on verse 4 says it like this. It is not that God needs turning from his anger. He's ready to do that. So much as that we need turning from our sin. But he is the hinge of the whole matter. Our trials, the problems in our nation, frequently arise out of our sins. But only God can turn us. So we don't have to wait till 2016 to vote. For what we want to see happen here in America, we can start voting right now, every single day, to God, that we need God to turn our nation around again. And this psalm right here gives us a template of what that prayer should look like, okay? So we're going to give you three principles today on how to pray for a revival, specifically a revival in America right now. But the first thing we got to say, before we get into what to pray, we just got to say that you should be praying if you're a Christian person here. In fact, let's write this down. Before we get to point number one, two, and three, let's just write this down right now. It's not okay not to pray, okay? It's not okay 
not to pray. I don't know what, what your idea of being a Christian is and where you learned it from. And if at some church or some group of people or in your family, people didn't pray and that was fine, we could all love Jesus and we could all live for God, we're just never going to talk to Him. If you grew up here and that's how it should be, I want to tell you right now, that's not what the Bible says. There is an assumption in the Bible that God's people will pray to Him. In fact, write down Matthew chapter 6 as a cross-reference there. Maybe some of you ladies were at our women's event yesterday where we talked about this expectation that we would be people who pray. We've preached on this at our own church before. Matthew chapter 6 where the Lord teaches the disciples to pray and he says, when you pray is how he says it. It's not if you pray. It's not when you make time to pray. It's a statement of assumption that every single person who would claim to have a relationship with God would actually talk to the God they claim to know. How would your spouse feel if you said, I love my spouse to everybody else, but when you get home, you never talk to your spouse? Your spouse wouldn't feel very loved. And how many Christians would claim to everyone else that they know God, but when it comes down to them, in the quietness of their heart, in the secret place where it's just them and God, they don't talk to God. That's hypocrisy, see. And Jesus is going to call everybody here out, and he's going to say, when you pray, he's going to assume that you talk to him. And the idea is you've got this secret place. It's a well-known place to you. It's the quiet place. It's where you go in your room, and you shut the door. It's only you and your father, and you spend some time in this place. You ask people if they pray, and some people will admit flat out that they don't pray much, if at all. And then some people will be like, oh yeah, I pray for a few minutes, maybe at night, like five, ten minutes before I go to bed. And sometimes we hear people say that and we think, wow, that person must really pray. Look at them, five, ten minutes before they go to bed. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it says to pray. I mean, that's not what Christians have been known throughout history. Christians used to, they used to talk about a lot about the knees of Christians. Have you ever heard about this? There are all the people with calluses on their knees, well-worn knees. All those Christians are always on their knees. What were they doing on their knees? Praying. When was the last time any of us got down on our knees for anything? To pray to God. To go to Him into the secret place and to talk to Him there. So if you're not praying, if, you, if you're calling yourself a Christian here today, and you don't pray on a daily basis to talk to God, then, then we, anyone who would claim that here this morning in this, we are the problem. Do you see what I'm saying here? To say I know God and not to talk to Him is the worst form of hypocrisy. Okay? It's a lie. So I don't know if you are, you're actively lying or if you're self-deceived, but if you think that you can be a Christian without talking to God, the Bible is going to tell you here today it's impossible. You've got to be talking to Him. Go to John 14. Look at what Jesus says about prayer. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time wondering why we don't pray more, why I don't pray more, why people who go to church every Sunday and call themselves a Christian and seem genuine, why don't they pray at all? And I think that we think prayer's not really going to do anything. In fact, I've even heard people at church, people at churches like this one, say, you know, well, prayer is really more for me. Prayer is something I do so that my heart can be right with God. Prayer, I mean, God's already going to do what He's going to do. 
So I just go to pray because that helps me get like more spiritual. I've heard people say that. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've thought that. That is the opposite of what prayer is in the Bible. That is just flat out not true. God doesn't want anybody praying so that they will be more spiritual. In fact, the people who use like fancy language and repeat a bunch of things over and over in prayer, those people are called hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6. Those are people trying to impress God, trying to be more spiritual in their own prayers. God wants nothing to do with that. Jesus exposes that for the fraud that it is. Here's how Jesus wants people to pray. Here's how he wants us to think about it. John 14, verse 12. Look at this with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So Jesus is saying that those who follow him will do the same things that he did. In fact, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Something hard to believe there. That's why Jesus starts it with, truly, truly, I say to you, something hard to believe. You might not believe it, but the people who follow me are going to do greater works even than what I do. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is, I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus says right here. Okay? Okay, so let's just get our definition down based on what Jesus says here. Prayer is asking God to act. Let's, let's write that down if we're taking notes. I'm asking God to do something. The point of my prayer is not my own spirituality. That's hypocrisy. The point of my prayer is I'm thinking God is going to do something based on coming to him in prayer. See, that's a bit bigger than what some of us have been thinking maybe. Jesus is saying that if you ask anything in his name, he will do it. The point of prayer is he will hear your prayer and he will answer your prayer. He will do what you ask him to do. Now the key phrase here is, in my name. Okay? In my name. Now Jesus' name, sometimes we just tag that on at the end of our prayers. In Jesus' name. Like that makes it legit. Like okay, signing off now, right? I mean, sometimes we do that. What does that really mean? Well, what it means is that when you think of the name of Jesus, that's who he is. It's all of his character. It's all of his attributes put together. Like if somebody says your name, they think about who you are. They think about the way that you treat them. They think about if you're a person that they could trust or not. If you're a, a person of integrity. Like when somebody says your name, who you are, all of your attributes, the way that they would describe you, that's what comes to mind. And so Jesus is saying, if you know me, and you know who I am, and you know what I'm all about, and you ask me to act in a way that makes sense with my name, in a way that's consistent with my character, then I'll do what you ask me to do. He's saying, my attributes, who I am, that should be what's fueling your prayers. You should be asking me to be me. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. Prayer is asking God to act like God. We're saying, God, this is who you are, so do the things that you do. Go back to Psalm 85, okay? Now that we see this promise where Jesus says prayer is something he's going to answer. He's going to do what we pray for. Well, look at all of the attributes that we're appealing to about God here in Psalm 85. We talk about God forgiving. We talk about God's wrath and anger and that being turned away. 
I mean, the verse 7 is kind of the, the climax here. Show us your steadfast love. God, you are love, so act in a loving way to people by saving sinners. God, you are the God, you are a savior, you are a deliverer, a rescuer. So give people your salvation. What we're doing here is, God is this, therefore I ask him to do this. So fill in the blank, pick an attribute of God. Uh, Something I know about God is he is the judge, okay? So then God, judge rightly here in America. And I start to, based on who God is, I ask him to act in that way. Let's get that down for our first principle, for point number one. We need to appeal to God based on his attributes, okay? Based on who he is in his character. So because God is a God of love and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again so that anyone here could die to your old life and live a new life in Jesus Christ, because I know that's who God is, then I'm going to ask him, based on his love, to give that love to people in salvation. It's like, what do you know about God? Ask him to be him. We read in the Bible, great things that God has done. That's because he's a great God. I don't know what what you want to do with your life. I don't know what gets you up in the morning. But what I want to do is see the things that I read about in the Bible happen at this church. That's why I'm here, okay? I read about God doing amazing things in the Old Testament when Jesus is here in the book of Acts. And I would like to see God do God's stuff in America in the year 2015. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? So let's ask him to do something. I'm not, we're not going to ask him to do anything that he doesn't want to do. No, we're going to say, based on who you are, God, please act accordingly. Go to Genesis 18, and we'll see a great example of this with Abraham, all right? We're going to look at a lot of examples of men who prayed to God in the way that Psalm 85 gives us the example of. And here's an amazing conversation between Abraham as he prays for the city of Sodom. Maybe you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah before, or as we would refer to them today, New York and Los Angeles. Maybe you've heard of these places, all right? Cities that were known for their wickedness, right? That eventually, what literally happened to these cities, because their wickedness was so out of control, that God sent fire from heaven to consume these cities and to burn them up. Literally happened. Now, Abraham, the founder of the nation of Israel, right, the man who would become a blessing to all nations, he's got a relative named Lot who just happens to take up residence in Sodom. And so when he knows that God is going to judge Sodom, Abraham doesn't want to see God judge Sodom because that's where his relative Lot lives. And so he is now going to pray for God not to judge Sodom. Sodom, and we see this here in Genesis 18, verse 22. Look at this with me. And so, so the men turned from there and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham, he goes and he still stood before the Lord. He goes before the Lord into that secret place. And Abraham drew near and said, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, are you the kind of God that treats righteous people and wicked people the same way? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away that place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. 
You're not unjust like that, God, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. That's not consistent with your character. Here's a key phrase you could underline, you could circle. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Here's something I know about God. God is the judge. And something I know about God is his judgments are 100% just. They are righteous. They are pure. Whatever God says will always be the right decision. Okay? And so Abraham is actually going to use the fact that God is judge to make an appeal for God not to judge. See, this is some pretty good praying right here. And he's going to say, because you judge and you separate the righteous, those that you have saved from the wicked, those still lost in their sin, you can't burn Sodom to the ground. What about the righteous people that live there? That's not just like you, God. On the basis of his attributes, he appeals to him, don't judge righteous people. That's a strong prayer. In fact, God goes along with it. Look at verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find it Sodom... 50 righteous in the city. I hear what you're saying, Abraham. I will spare the whole place for their sake. If there's 50 righteous people there, we will not burn the entire city down, right? Now, Abraham here, he starts to get a little bit bold, a little bit confident. Look what he says, verse 27. Abraham answered and said, behold, okay, God, I know, I know I'm just a guy, but behold, I know I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I? I am but dust and ashes, okay? So he's coming in humility. But let's just say five of the 50. I mean, let's 50, you know, let's just say five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? What about five less people? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, okay, suppose 40. You know, we're just working our way down by fives, right? Maybe 40 people. And he answered, okay, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, Lord, please don't get angry. Uh, And I will speak, just a guy here, but I'm going to go by 10 this time. Suppose 30 are found there. What if it's only 30 righteous people? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, (laughs) I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. So, okay, here we go, one more time. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once, the last time, Lord, what if there's only 10 righteous people? You're not going to judge the whole city if there's 10 righteous people there, are you? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Do you see this? Here's a man pleading with God based on what? God, you're the judge. You're not going to judge righteous people. You're just. You do what is right. You're not going to kill righteous people in their own city, are you? Now, the truth is, there weren't ten righteous people in the wicked city of Sodom. There was one, Abraham's relative, named Lot, and God sent angels to get him out of the city before he burned it down. So God was just. He he delivered the righteous people. But this is an example of the kind of prayer we should be doing where we take an attribute of God. If God is blank, then God, please do blank. Based on who you are, act in a way that makes sense with who you are. Go back to Psalm 85. And you'll see that in the midst of all of this calling on God's attributes, please don't be angry. 
Please show us your steadfast love. We're talking about God's name, his character, and we're appealing to it. At the end of that, we get to verse 8. So Psalm 85, if we're going to break it down, the first three verses are kind of remembering God's work in the past. Verses 4 to 7 are the prayer for the revival right now based on God's attributes. And verses 10 to 13 are this future expectation where the whole world is like surrounded by God's attributes, his love and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his peace are just everywhere that people can see them. But look at what it says in verse 8. It says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So I'm praying to God, and as I'm praying to God and trying to figure out what to say to him, I stop to see if he answers my prayer. And I, I base my prayer on what God the Lord will speak. Because he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So we can get even more specific here, my friends. Not only do we know attributes about God that we can appeal to him based on, but we have his word that we can look at, and if God has said something in his word that he's going to do, we can ask him to do things that he has already said. So it's not just his character, it's name, it's specific promises. God has said, I am going to do this. We can pray those things to God. We can ask him to do what he promised to do. Great example. Jesus said, I will build my church on the rock of the revelation of who I am. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Should we be praying for Jesus to build his church here in Huntington Beach? Yes, we should. Is that something that Jesus is going to do? He's already said he was going to do it. See? Do you see the power in prayer there? When you just take God's words and you remind him, hey, here's what you said. Now I'm just asking you to do what you said. Go to 1 John chapter 5 and, you, and you'll see how this works out. You'll see the kind of confidence that, that we should have when we pray. Now I know, let's just be honest here. Can we be honest? This is church. I like to, I like to go for honesty at church. We, let's just get real. I've already lost some of you guys in this message. Okay, let's just, can we be honest? Some of you guys are not with me because we're talking about two things that just aren't realities. One, one is we're trying to teach you how to pray, but if you don't pray, you're already kind of mentally disconnecting from some of this. That's going on, okay? The other thing is I'm saying let's see a revival in America, and some of you honestly in your hearts, if we could just be real right now, you have no hope for a revival in America. You've given up. Hillary Clinton's going to get elected no matter what these Republicans do. And sin is just going to become the law of the land. And we're going to go broke. And China's going to invade in a pact with Russia. And ISIS will rule the world. I mean, that's, that's what, if you watch enough news, that's how you're going to feel about it, my friends. Gloom and doom and woe is us. And Man, revival in America? Turning back to God? So people would say the Bible is God's word and there is a God and we're sinners? I don't think we could see that in our nation. Again, that sounds like mission impossible. That's exactly what we're talking about, my friends. When it feels impossible, when it feels like there's no way that you or anyone else or some army or some government or some church could do it, that's the point of prayer right there. We pray for the impossible. If you're not praying for the impossible, then you've probably stopped praying because your prayers are boring. You're probably just praying for yourself. Can you imagine anything more boring than that? I mean, I, I hate to demean you, but I'm going to demean you for a minute. You got, if, if on, the only person that you're concerned about God saving and doing something in is you. You live in a very small world, my friend. 
And you're asking this great God of heaven and earth, this great God who wants to do awesome wonders, you're just hoping he can help you out? Like that's how big he is? Like maybe he'll come through for you? You see how small you've just, like if your prayers are about you, you have just limited God into a very tiny living space. See, That's not the way we're supposed to think about it. Jesus says if you pray, and you pray with faith, here's what it'll be like. It'll be like a mountain being thrown into the sea. That doesn't make sense. Nobody's throwing mountains around. I haven't seen any mountains getting tossed into the Pacific. All the mountains that I know around here are still here. What are you talking about? That's impossible, Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. That's what prayer does. Prayer asks God to do what no one else could do. Only he could do it. And if he said he's going to do it, then we should pray like he's going to do it. We should ask him to. Look at 1 John chapter 5. Start with me in verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, so you're, you're calling yourself a Christian. You believe that Jesus is true, that he died for our sins, that he rose again. Well, I want you to know that you have eternal life. That's what our youth is going through right now, 1 John, that you could have salvation assurance, okay? And here's the kind of confidence I want you to live with as a Christian. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. Okay, so it's a logical progression here. If you ask according to God's will, you can know that he hears you. And if he hears you, you can already know he's going to answer your prayers. And see, people, they make that very mysterious. Well, we don't know what God's will is. So we'll just throw it out like a tagline at the end. If it's your will, God, maybe do this. And I agree, there's some areas that are mysterious. Will we, will we recover from our illness? What will happen with our finances? What will happen in some of our relationships? We aren't guaranteed outcomes in every specific situation. So I know we can't always know what's going to happen. But where do we find the will of God? Where does God reveal to us what he wants to happen on our planet? Where do we see his kingdom to come, his will to be done? He has revealed to us 66 inspired books that we've put together and called the Bible that tell us here's what God wants. Here's promises that God has said he's going to do. So praying according to God's will isn't mysterious. It's taking what he said and praying it to him. It's like a kid coming to their heavenly father. We're like spiritual children coming to our heavenly father. It's like one of our kids coming to us and saying, hey, dad, remember how you said you would do this? You could ever do that to you? Any dad ever got busted like that before? Anybody know what I'm talking about? We we do this thing at our house. We got angel fever right now at our house. Anybody else feeling like this? We are Mike Trout all the time at our house, right? We're getting into baseball. And my son, he likes to play baseball in the backyard. Anybody ever played backyard baseball? It's so fun. You hit the ball over the wall. You're like scheming how to get into the neighbor's house to get the ball back, right? The neighbors are like throwing your balls. You're getting to know your neighbors. They're throwing them back over into your backyard. And they're like, wow, you guys are hitting a lot of home runs. They don't know like their yard's foul territory. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, lots of home runs over here. That's right, yeah. 
My son is so into this. He's nine years old right now. He has literally created an alternative reality of baseball teams. And he's written out all these fake names and fake batting averages, and he's got a whole season. It's like the trawl balls versus the bush boshers today at our house, right? And my team, he allowed me to be in this imaginary league that he's created. I'm the big dads. That's my team that I represent, right? And so, I, so he's out there playing imaginary games in the backyard, and he really wants his dad to come and play a baseball game with him in the backyard. And he says, Dad, Dad, will you come and play with me? Will you come and play with me? Just incessantly, always asking me to play with him. I don't know if anybody else's kids are like that. And eventually, I finally say, yes, I will come and play with you, just not right now, right? I mean, I, a lot of times I love to do it, but we're just being honest here. Sometimes I'm tired. It's the end of the day, and I'm not ready to go outside. So, yeah, I'll, I'll play. And then later, he has the audacity to come back to me. And he says to me, hey, Dad, remember how you said you would play baseball? And you feel it every single time when he says it like that. Yeah, I did say that, didn't I? All right, bush boshers, watch out. Here come the big dads, you know what I mean? And what am I doing? Playing baseball with my son, and I love it. But when he comes to me and he makes that appeal, Dad, you said you would play with me, and I'm busted. I know I said it, and now's the time to come to do it. That's the same exact appeal that you and I are called to make of our Heavenly Father. Oh, Father in Heaven, you promised that those who began a good work in, you would complete it. So now, God, sanctify your people. God, you promised that you would delay judgment, and when the gospel rings out, that people would respond in repentance and faith that you would save more sinners. God, you promised to do it, so do it now, Dad. That's what we're doing in our prayers. We're saying, God, I know who you are. You are faithful. You are true to your word, and you told me that you would do this, and I come to you humbly now as one of your kids, and I ask you, my loving Father, do this and do it now. Is your dad going to refuse you when you come to him like that? See, that's what prayer is. We should have confidence that when we pray according to God's will, He will answer us. He will answer our prayers. He will act based on what we asked of Him. Let me ask you guys a few questions. Is it God's will to save sinners from judgment? Is that God's will? What do you guys think? Is it God's will for people here who have put their faith in Jesus Christ to grow in sanctification and to become mature in Christ? Is that God's will? Is it God's will for people like us to get outside of the walls of the church and to get into the streets of our cities and to spread the good news that Jesus is the Savior of all people? Is that God's will? Well, then let's ask Him. If He said He's going to do it, let's say, God, I'm just saying what You said, God. And You promised You would do it, and I'm coming to You based on who You are, and I ask You now, God, that You would do Your will here among us, right now, today. God, we want to see what you did in the Bible in America now. God, show us your salvation. Let us see your steadfast love. Turn to Exodus 33, and you'll see how Moses did this masterfully. Moses had this unique experience of getting this kind of physical expression of the glory of God. I mean, Moses, he got to go up on the mountain and God hid him and he got a glimpse of the glory of God in a physical way so that Moses' face lit up so that they had to put a veil over his face because he was just radiating the glory of God in a physical manifestation. 
And it says here in Exodus 33, verse 11, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That God and Moses had this very intimate, tight relationship where they would talk with one another. And in fact, if you read the whole context there, it's like there was this tent of meeting a little bit outside of the camp, and Moses would walk out to this tent to meet with God, and this pillar of cloud would come down upon this tent to show that God was there talking to Moses. And the whole nation of Israel would stand at all of their tents in the camp, and they would watch Moses walk out to this tent of meeting, and they would watch Moses talk to God. And here's a glimpse into one of their conversations after the people had sinned. This is Exodus. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you all have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if that's true, if what you said is true, if I have found favor in your sight, please, based on that, show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Let it be true. I mean, do you see two different times here? Moses, when he comes to God, he starts with what God said. He said, you said this, and you said this, so please then, do what you said you would do. Let's get that down for point number two. Here's how we want to pray. We want to quote God's own words back to him. So we need to be looking up promises in the Scripture principles that would apply to us today, specific promises that we can bank on. And we need to be taking these promises and we need to be saying, God, this is what you say in your word. I know you cannot lie. I know you speak the truth. And so God, I ask you today, do what you said you would do. And when God's people come to him, he wants you to know that he hears you. And that if he hears you, he's going to do what you ask of him when it's according to his will. What I'm trying to tell you to encourage you here this morning is you can know his will. He's revealed it to you. And so Moses here, see, these guys get so bold. When you know what you're praying is what you're supposed to pray. When God has promised to you, he will act based on what you're praying. You start praying with a boldness, with a passion, with a fervency. All of a sudden you're praying and long time is going by and you don't even notice it because it's like you're really talking to God, like happens with anybody else that you love and talk to. And so here we see when you appeal to God's attributes, God, you're like this, so do this. Or when you appeal to God's word, God, you said this, so do this. So you're speaking with a boldness and a confidence. Look how bold Moses gets here. He says, consider too that this nation is your people. Look at verse 14. God responds to his boldness. He says, hey, if I've really found favor, then you need to go with me. And God says, he answers Moses in verse 14, my presence will go with you. We're talking about entering the promised land, which God maybe was not going to do because the people had sinned. But here's Moses interceding. And he says, okay, my presence will go with you. But that's not enough. Moses doesn't want the presence of God. He wants literally God to go with them. And so in verse 15, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? How's everybody else going to know that you favor me, I and your people, that we're your chosen people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God, that's the whole point is you have to go with us. That's how all the other nations are going to see that you are our God, that there's something different about us. And they'll come to worship you too. 
And so look what God says. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. Basically, God's saying, my word is true. I'm going to do what you said that I said I would do. And I do know you by name. And now Moses, he just goes for it, completely bold. A man, a sinful man in the presence of the holy God, he says, please show me your glory. When I know what I'm praying is what God wants me to pray, I will be so excited to pray it. I will pray with passion. I will come to God, even as a sinner. I will come into his holy presence with boldness, with confidence, and I will ask God to do great things. What if everybody here in this room was praying like that? Do you think God would answer us, my friends? Let me ask you a question. Let's see if you're getting the point of this message before. so far. If we pray for revival, will we see a revival? Is that encouraging to anybody here? Did you live last week like that was true? Did you really cry out to God for America last week like you want to see him do something great in our nation like you believe he can do it because of who he is, because of what he said, and you're boldly going to him day after day expecting to see results. A lot of us pray and we act like we're never going to see an answer. And that's become common thinking in the church. No, here's what the Bible says. When you ask according to my will, I will hear you. And you can know when I hear you, I will do it. That's what God says. I want to answer your prayers when you pray according to my will. Go to Acts chapter 4. Here's another example of this. Of how they're going to use the attributes and the scripture of God to appeal to God in prayer. Here in Acts 4, Peter and John are on trial because they filled the whole city of Jerusalem with the name of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that his followers would do even greater works than he did. Well, in the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, revival breaks out in Jerusalem like it never did when Jesus was walking on the earth. Through his disciples, through the power of the Spirit working in them. And they're raising this Jesus ruckus in the city of Jerusalem. People are talking about it all over the place. So Peter and John get arrested and brought before the same guys who killed Jesus. The authorities of the Jewish religion of that day. I mean, you would think if they just killed your boss and now they bring you before them and you, they're like, hey, what are you doing telling everybody about Jesus? You would think you might be tempted to back down and maybe just be like, I'm sorry, please don't hurt me, cry for mercy, something like that, right? You know what they say? Peter says it very eloquently. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but he says, yeah. We did it in the name of Jesus, and let's just make it clear that there is only one name given among men under heaven by which anybody here is saved, and it's not in what you're doing. The only way that people are saved is the name of Jesus Christ. They don't just say, yeah, we did this in Jesus. They up the ante. They take it to the next level. They say, hey, in fact, that's the only way that anybody's doing anything is in Jesus' name, according to who he is, according to what he has said. And the... the, The authorities who killed Jesus are so blown away by the boldness of the disciples that they don't even do anything to them. In fact, they let them go because they're overwhelmed with the boldness of these guys. They kind of just say, hey, stop talking about Jesus or we're going to do bad stuff to you. And 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 then they go. And they go straight to this. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends, to the other believers, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Hey, we just got persecuted for Jesus, everybody. 
And when they heard it, guess what breaks out? Prayer meeting breaks out. And they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, right away, let's start with an attribute. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Let's start quoting some scripture. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, now let me just quick time out here. We're not just repeating back to God how awesome God is. That's what sometimes I hear people doing when they pray. Get the privilege of praying with a lot of people here at the church. And a lot of times people will just say, God, you're so awesome. You've made heaven and earth. You've done all these good things. We've heard these prayers before, right? And at some point, we got to realize, hey, God knows how awesome he is, you guys, okay? We don't just need to repeat back to God who he is. We need to ask God to do something based on who he is. That's the point of prayer. We're not just praising him in our prayers. We're asking him to act because of our prayers. So yeah, it's great to praise the Lord when we're praying. Let's do it. But those attributes, watch, this this attribute of sovereignty that they bring up, that he's the creator, that he's in control. This scripture, that even though the rulers of this world are against him, he's still over them. Now watch how they're going to make that an action of God. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, here's some rulers, your Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and they could only do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place because of your sovereignty. So now, Lord, here's what we want you to do. Look upon their threats and give to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. Do signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See? God, because you're in control and these guys are telling us what to do, but we know you have authority above them based on your scripture. So God, right now, let us speak boldly for you, not afraid of what any man, even the governing authorities, might think about us. I mean, can you imagine this? You just got arrested. And they told you to stop talking about Jesus and you go immediately to a prayer meeting for more boldness to talk more about Jesus Christ because you're not afraid of any man and you fear God. That's what's going on here. And look what happens. This is awesome to me. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, a little holy earthquake here. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with what? What does it say there? Boldness. They asked for God to give them boldness and guess what happened? They went and spoke the word with boldness. God answered their prayer. Can you imagine if stuff like that was happening around here? What if we had people get so fired up about a revival in America? They just saw the need was so great and the lack of people doing anything about it so severe that they said, hey, we're going to call the prayer meeting on Monday nights. What's the night of the week that people will most likely never come out to a prayer meeting? Let's do it then. Monday night, seven o'clock. Let's pray. Anybody who wants to. We're going to pray, and God, we pray that you will use us to spread this gospel all over the streets of Huntington Beach and in the surrounding communities because you are a savior, and you've promised you'll save sinners. You're delaying judgment so more people will repent. So God, send us out, and when we say amen, Johnny Miller and the crew are praying, and when we say amen, there's like an earthquake right here at this building. Just start shaking. Can you imagine the excitement of that? We'd look at each other, and we'd be like, 
Yeah! Like running out into the streets, looking for more people to talk to. Like God is with us. Like we asked him to do something, and guess what we actually believe? He's going to do it. So hypothetically speaking, there's going to be a prayer meeting here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. All right? And anybody who wants to is invited to come and pray for the sole purpose of seeing God do a mighty work of revival in our nation. Bring your attributes, bring your verses, and let's ask God to act as he has already said he will and consistent with who he is. Okay? Now there's one more thing. Go back to Psalm 85. There's one more way that we got to learn how to pray from this chapter. And I want you to see the tense that is used, and we alluded to this earlier already. Look at Psalm 85, verse 4, where it says to Shub, to turn, we're praying for a great turning among the people of the nation. Notice what it says, restore me again, O God of my salvation. Is that what it says? Put away your indignation from me. Don't be angry with me, God. Revive me. Does everybody notice that it uses a different tense there? Everybody notice that he's praying in the plural? You see how his prayers are for something more than himself? Something greater than just one man? No, the, the prayers here are for us, the entire nation. And we come to God as one of the people that needs to cry out for the church, for the city, for the nation. Whatever group of people we're representing, we come as one of them. See? What we don't need in our prayers today is, God, I pray for our government that they will repent of their sin, God. I pray for all of these people who continue to be a part of Planned Parenthood even after they've been exposed in such a grotesque way. God, I pray for those people, God. Give them repentance, see? God, I pray for all these people celebrating homosexuality in our nation like it's a good thing. God, bring them to the understanding of your word. Here's the thing, you guys. God's not going to answer prayers for salvation and repentance when we pray them in such a judgmental way. We don't pray for other people like we're not a part of the sin. We pray for us. I'm an American. You're an American. We are the people that are turning away from God. Me and you. I'm one of them. Are you one of them? We're all the sinners here. This is how the men of God have prayed throughout the history of the Scripture, throughout the history of the world. They don't come to God on their own behalf. They come to God on behalf of others. It's called interceding. It's the only way that we can even pray. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself to be a man, to pay for your sin, and now he intercedes. He is in heaven representing you. He's pleading to God on your behalf. Did Jesus do any of your sin? No, but he represents your sin in front of God. That's how you and I are supposed to pray. We pray for us here in America. We pray for our church. Don't pray for somebody else to experience something that you're not ready to experience yourself, my friends. See, You'll notice this as you start to read the scripture. The people are always praying in the plural because they're praying on behalf of other people as well as themselves. Let's get that down for point number three. We need to pray in the plural on behalf of others. You need to watch your language. You watch your personal pronouns. Is it me, myself, and I in your prayers? 
Or is it us, we, and our? There's a lot of your as we're talking to God, but there needs to be our as we're representing. And specifically, if we're going to pray for revival in America, then we need to come to God and confess our sins. And you say, well, I'm not doing those sins. No, but you come to God on behalf of your fellow citizens. Go to Daniel chapter 9. And you'll see this. Daniel is a great example of prayer. He's one of God's people. This is a little bit to the right here in your Old Testament from the book of Psalms. Daniel chapter 9 on page 746. If you got one of our Bibles, I really want you to see this prayer. Because Daniel, we know, was a righteous man. Israel got, because Israel was wicked and they didn't turn from their sin, they got invaded by King Nebuchadnezzar and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And he took some of the best and brightest, some of the young men from the nation of Israel, and he took them back to Babylon to brainwash them, to compromise them. This is Daniel chapter 9 we're turning to. And Daniel stands up, and unlike the Jewish people of the day, he made up in his mind not to compromise in sin, not to defile himself. Daniel said, I'm not going to go along with the rest of my nation. I'm going to make a stand for God. And Daniel, he was a righteous man in, the, in God's eyes. God would have declared him righteous because of his faith. And so when Daniel, now that he rises actually to a position of real authority, I mean, he's like the, the, the voice of reason in the kingdom of Babylon now. He's one of like the ruling, governing authorities in the nation that took over Israel. And he's got all these enemies who hate him. Now, if you had, let me, let's just throw out a hypothetical situation. If you had enemies who were trying to take you down, I know this is kind of disturbing, but go with me, okay? If you had enemies who were trying to take you down and they could follow you around, they could have access to all of your accounts online. They have the latest video surveillance technology and your most private of places to see everything about you. They're watching you constantly, looking for your weakness because they want to destroy you and take you down. What would they find about you if your enemies were coming after you? Because Daniel's enemies, the only thing that they could find about him to go after him for was he prayed too much. That, they decided, was his greatest weakness. And maybe you're familiar with the story where they tricked uh, the king and they made it so that it was illegal to pray to any other god. And so they made it illegal to pray and then they knew that at that same place, at that same time in the secret place facing towards the temple, Daniel would be there praying to God multiple times a day. That's what the guy was all about. It was his big weakness. He prayed too much and he ended up getting thrown into a den of lions. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be great if the thing that people had to accuse us as Christians about is that we prayed too much? We were into our God too much? So Daniel, I'm trying to tell you all of this to help you see this is a righteous man. But yet hear how he prays here in Daniel chapter 9. Follow along with me in verse 3. And he prays like this, Then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You would think that Daniel was in some serious sin here because of his pleas and his external sackcloth and ashes showing his repentance. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned 
We've done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers. And they spoke to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and those far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And what I'm trying to tell you is I don't think Daniel did those sins, but he prayed like he did. Because he came to God and he was asking God to act not on his own behalf alone, but on behalf of his entire nation. And if you and I want to see God do a revival here in America, then we have to come and confess the sins of America, our sins. So let us get outraged by the unrighteousness that is growing more prevalent all around us and let us own it as if it was our sin and intercede on behalf of America and take it to the Lord on behalf of our nation and let us see God do a great revival in our land. If we pray to him according to his attributes, if we pray to him according to his word, all right, if we pray to him and confess our sins, I promise you this, God will answer us. Let me just ask the question one more time. If we pray for revival, will we see a revival, my friends? What do you think? So what's stopping us? What's holding us back? You know, I mean, it's exciting what God's doing here uh, among a few hundred people at our church. We got more people, it seems like, showing up every Sunday. But what if this is the day of humble beginnings, my friends? What if we're all here at the ground floor of something very big that God wants to build in America, where he wants people to turn back to him and worship him and acknowledge him as creator and give him the glory over their lives? What if we're just seeing small things right now compared to what God is yet to do? And I ask you to open up your bulletin and you'll see kind of a plan that we've got for the next few weeks. I mean, we've got a lot of dates of things that are coming up in the future. And what I'm going to do, actually, is I'm going to take a little break here at this church, all right? I'm going to take a couple weeks so I can go and I can pray for what God is going to do in year two of our church. And so I've got two of the best men I know coming to preach. One is my dad. He'll be preaching here next Sunday. And I'm so excited for you guys to get to meet him. And then in two weeks, we'll have Pastor Pete, one of the pastors of the church that planted us. He's been here before. Some of you guys have heard him. He'll be here speaking. And then in three weeks, I'll be coming back and I'll be prayed up and we will start blazing through the Gospel of John. And it's probably going to take us two years to go through this Gospel. And we're just going to start lifting high the name of Jesus and telling everybody who will come here to listen who Jesus is so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're going to spread the name of Jesus as far and wide as we possibly can. That's what we're going to do here in year two. In fact, you can look and see, if you look down at the announcements, the first week of September, September 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, that's a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night. We're going to be doing church in the middle of the week, three nights, because we're just so excited to start preaching who Jesus is. And so hopefully what God's going to do in year two 
will make year one seem like it really hasn't been that big of a deal. And, and so I want to challenge everybody here. If this is your church, then you need to pray right now more than you have ever prayed before for God to revive our country and to do it through the church, through people like us. So I'm challenging you here today. I would ask you to pray more in the month of August than you have ever prayed before. And if we're going to just be honest, for some of you, that won't be hard, all right? Just how much have you prayed? Let's take it up a notch, okay? Let's get more serious about prayer. Let's start making lists of attributes, scriptures that we can, that are promised to us, sins of our nation that we can confess. And if some of you guys are prayer warriors and you've been doing this stuff for decades, it is time to double down. We're calling all prayer warriors. Your country needs you now more than ever before. So let's pray and let's see what God is going to do because I believe that when we ask, He will answer. Pray with me. God, we come to You right now as a church of people, a small little church that you've planted us here in Huntington Beach. God, and we thank you for this first year that you've given to us. But God, the need is so great. And there are so many who are lost in their sins. In fact, it feels like our whole nation is going down the direction away from you into sin. And people love it that way. They're celebrating it, God. And so God, we come to you as your people in the name of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all men, who sacrificed His precious blood so that our sin could be washed away. God, we come to You as Americans, and we ask that You would revive us again, God. That it would start in the church, that it would start with churches like this one, who would get back to preaching the gospel and repentance of sins and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, that You would raise up many people who would send out Your light and your truth, and that God, you would show us your love once again by saving just a whole wave of people, just a movement of repentance in our land, God. And God, we have so much sin to confess to you. There is so much that we need to say, God, about how we murder the innocent who cannot defend themselves. God, about how we have declared sexual immorality, what you have said is wicked, we have now declared it right in this land, God. God, we confess our sins to you, our murder, our adultery, God. We come to you confessing the, our sin of homosexuality that is sweeping across our nation. And God, we ask that we would be in open shame. And that you would hear our cry out. And that you would forgive us, God. And that you would turn many hearts back to you. God, that you would revive us again. God, hear this prayer that we pray to you today and answer us. God, show us you're a God who acts. Reveal to us your character. Let us see it. Your promises come true. So it's like we're reading the Bible as we look at what's happening in the lives around us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.